One of the things uh, that's really incredible if you allow yourself time to kind of let it sink in is the way that when you read the book of Acts, the early church is really exploding across the known world. It's, it's, I know if you have a church background like I do and if you've read the book of Acts before, it's kind of like just words on a page, but it's incredible. If this kind of growth was happening today, it would be the biggest news in the church world uh, of anything. Uh, even here in the book of Acts, we read things like God added 3,000 people to the church, or there was 5,000 men in the early church, and we just read that like it's nothing. But 5,000 men means probably 10,000 people or so. And so as we said before, this is so crazy if you just stop and think about it, right? As a kid, I was part of a church around, that was around 3,000 people. Uh, and now as someone who's served in different churches, been a part of different churches, uh, to think of that amount of people just suddenly showing up at church is wild. Absolutely. And we talked about this in our first couple of weeks. Like the first question is, where are we baptizing everybody? Because that's what happened. And so that's what's happening in the early centuries of the church. It was really unprecedented. It was unparalleled expansion. Uh, this is a description from the book Christianity Through the Centuries. It says this, The number of active believers in Jerusalem after the resurrection, after Jesus was raised from the dead, was estimated at approximately 500 by Paul. That's in 1 Corinthians 15. He says there's 500 eyewitnesses. So that's very early on in the church. And then... A man named Pliny wrote a letter, and, and Pliny's letter proved that Christianity was strong in Asia Minor shortly after the beginning of the second century. So in just a short amount of time, this is happening. During the first century, it had been confined largely to the eastern section of the Roman Empire, with the Jews being given the first chance to accept Christianity as the gospel reached new cities. During the second century, expansion was rapid among the Greek-speaking Gentile population of the empire. The church in Alexandria became the chief church of Egypt, and Christians could be found in all parts of the empire by the year 200. So from basically year 33 to year 200, you have this tiny sect, this religion, this religious sect explode and go everywhere in the Roman Empire, which is incredible because remember, they didn't have the internet, they didn't have any of that stuff. This was just word of mouth and the Holy Spirit doing what the Holy Spirit does. And so the main reason that the church spread and multiplied is that the church is by nature expansive. That's the DNA of who the church is. Christ, Jesus, is the only way, and he set the example for us by being a missionary. He came, he left his home and came, and he gave his life for the world. So this is the DNA of our Lord Jesus. Jesus said, as I have been sent, now I'm sending you. And so this produced in the followers of Jesus that we see here in the book of Acts, a mindset of outreach, of sacrificial service, and a DNA of multiplication. That's just how it happens. Now, as we saw last week, one of the reasons, that's, that's the, the, the main reason, but maybe another important reason for expansion or a, a way that this expansion happened was persecution. Christians who were forced to flee from Jerusalem, who, remember, still had this mindset of a missionary and who are empowered by the Holy Spirit, they win converts where they go. They go to Samaria, they win converts. They go to Antioch, they preach in Antioch. This is the largest city in Syria, and it's the, the kind of the hub of Greek culture at the time. From there, Christianity spreads all around the, the, Mediterranean, the shores of the Mediterranean, all around the known world. And so 
persecution and opposition, which we saw last week is the, the expectation of walking with Jesus, instead of squashing Christianity, is actually gasoline on the fire of the church. The famous quote from Tertullian, the, the, seed of the, the, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, and, and that's held true through the centuries. So today, though, what we see in this text is a bit of a picture uh, of what that first church was like when it kind of, when it kind of burst out with, with God's love for a needy world. And, and so this is what, when we think of what makes a church great or what makes the church great, this is a picture of it. And so the question we're going to get back to at the end of our time together today is what about us as a church family? So, so if you've got those Bibles, Acts chapter 4, today we're going to just uh, cover five verses, verse 32 to 37. I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll dive in. This is Acts chapter 4, verse 32. I, I failed to mention, if you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a blue hardback one around you. If you don't own a Bible, there are some in the same place where this welcome card is. There's some paperback Bibles. I'd love for you to take one of those home and, and wear it out. Uh, so Acts chapter 4, verses 32 to 37. Now the number, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So the centrality of the resurrection of Jesus is right here. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you for the fact that we are gathered together. And Holy Spirit, we are asking you now to open our eyes to see what you want us to see in this text, would you, uh, would you lay the weight of what this picture of the church looks like on us, and would you lead us to respond accordingly, each as individuals, and then by the way that you do things, that would lead to us responding together as a church in unity. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Luke tells us here, the author of the book of Acts is Dr. Luke. He was a doctor. He wrote the Gospel of Luke. He also writes this. And so he tells us that the full number of those who believed were of one heart. They had a unity of heart. Now the word that gets used there for, or the word that's used there for heart that gets translated into our word heart is really talking about kind of the seat of your volition, the seat of your will. Listen to this definition. The, the, central, the heart is the central place to which God turns where religious experience has its root and which determines Conduct. Now, that's really important. Your heart, in this, in this sense, is what determines your conduct. We might say you do what you love, right? And so the heart is that inner self. And the church in Acts here was united in the deepest part of who they are. They share, and have you ever had this experience where you meet someone and you share like an unspoken bond? Or you share something with someone that kind of, I mean, this might be a little crass of a way to say it, but it's almost like an inside joke that you have together and it bonds you together. Obviously, this is much more in an eternal uh, sense. 
But, but the church in Acts here had this deep uniting thing. It's this unspoken thing. Like, it's like they're all in on a secret together, except it's not a secret because they're telling everybody they can tell. But they sense a fundamental unity with other believers. Right? And as Christians, this is true. I've, I, I, one of my favorite pastors says it this way. We have far more in common with Christians in other places in the world than people who are from the same country as us. We have far more in common, eternally speaking, with Christians who are from other places in this world than we do with people who are from the same place in this world that we are from. And so this is the goal for the church, the big C global church, and it's a goal for our church as well. This is the kind of unity that I pray for, that I want you to be praying for, that I invited you to pray for, I think last week or the week before, that we would be united in one heart. But Luke also uses another word here to describe this unity. He says the full number of those who believe were of one heart, but he says, and also they were united in soul. And so now we're seeing that the church here in Acts, remember, empowered by the Holy Spirit that Jesus promised, was, this is what I, how I like to say this, they're, they're kind of in the same headspace. They're thinking and feeling along the same lines. They're thinking about the same stuff, and they're coming to the same fundamental conclusions about those things, namely Jesus and his gospel. Again, this is a kind of unity that we're begging God to give us. Lord, bind us together in one heart and soul and mind. And so as a result, at least in this text today, at least just in this, these verses, there's no division. That's going to change quick because people are people. But at least in this text, we don't see any evidence here of any kind of factions or cliques or church splits. That's not happening in this text. They're experiencing true unity. Now, again, if you stop and think about the timeline of this, this is really incredible, and it can only be attributed to the power of the Holy Spirit, right? Because we church people like to disagree about a lot of stuff. And this can only be attributed to the power of the Spirit. Now, why do I say that? Well, remember, if you just look with your eyes in your Bible just a few verses before this, 3,000 people were just added to the church, and they were, from, they were Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene. There were visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. So the church is super diverse. All kinds of people from all over the known world just became followers of Jesus and just formed the first church. And suddenly there's no division how in the world does that happen? Well, the Holy Spirit. Now, now, here's where we need to insert some nuance into this. When we say unity, what we don't mean is unanimity. Okay, There's a massive difference. And the churches I've had uh, a part of in leading as a student pastor or as one of the lay elders or as a pastor, this is a huge issue when it comes to leading together. Many of us strive for unanimity when actually what we should strive for is unity. There's a massive difference. It doesn't mean that when someone becomes a Christian, they become a little Christian clone, and they like everything exactly that you like, and they do everything that you do. This is one of the legitimate critiques of the 20th century missions movement. Right? Too often, we mistake unanimity, everything exactly the same, for unity, and this is actually one of the most disunifying things that can happen in 
a church. When we legalistically strip one another of our individuality for the sake of this kind of false sense of unity, we actually end up creating division because, I don't know if you know this, but forcing unity on people never works. Right? One of the beauties of Jesus, though, is that he honors, simultaneously, he honors our individuality while bringing us into true unity. And can I just tell you, one of the evidences of that, if you want to use your senses right now, look around this room with your eyes that Jesus gave you and look at the unity of the kingdom of heaven. This is a picture of it, a shadow of it. And you just with your ears experienced a picture, a shadow of it when we were singing together, which is why singing matters. Or part of why it matters. It also matters because God commanded us to do it. But he commanded us to do it because it's good for us. Because you are hearing the, a manifestation of the power of the Holy Spirit when we sing together in church about the gospel of Jesus. That's what's happening. We're not just singing songs because we like them, although we do like them. We're singing songs because it's the sound of God's redemption in this neighborhood and in this place. And so Jesus honors our individuality while he brings us into true unity. 1 Corinthians 12 says, There is a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. There's varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are a variety of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. Here's what one commentator said. External, visible unity is not required for the invisible unity of the church. That's really powerful. External, visible unity is not required for the invisible unity of the church. As soon as you start making external unity have to be mandated to be visible, you have added to the gospel, and Paul has strong words for that. Don't add anything. External, visible unity is not required for the invisible unity of the church. So based on the fact that we know they came from all over the known world... The early Christians would certainly have differed in their opinions on many things. They liked different food. They wore different clothing. They had different languages. They had different customs. That's a hard one. I had a discussion just today with Julia about customs and how difficult they can be in different cultural settings. But what were they united on? They were united on the crucified and risen Jesus Christ as Lord and living in light of that reality superseded and trumped all the other allegiances, desires, and preferences, at least right now for these five verses. All of them recognized in heart and soul the necessity of living by the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of Jesus and his coming kingdom. This is what united them. Uh, one commentator added this onto the end of this opening sentence in this section, that they were united, and then he adds, neither was there any severance between them. I like that. They had one heart, one soul, and there was no severance between them, nothing pushing them apart. Now, in his classic book, which I think should be required reading for any Alliance Church member, uh, A.W. Tozer says this in pursuing or The Pursuit of Holiness. He says this, has it ever occurred to you, and I like this because it's a music reference, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? 
They're of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to, want, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers met together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. So what's Tozer saying? You want to have true unity? Keep your eyes on Jesus. Don't look at one another and try to force unity. No, look at Jesus and just keep looking at Jesus. This is when I have done premarital counseling with couples. If you both pursue God individually, you're going to grow closer together as a couple. 1 John 1.7 puts it this way. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. If you grew up like I did, a song just popped in your head. You're welcome. King David painted a word picture of this in Psalm 133. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters dwell in unity. It's like precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his robes. It's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessings of life forevermore. So David uses this word picture of the high priest being anointed with oil, and that oil running down all over his clothing to poetically portray to us how unity overflows to others. Jesus, in his famous high priestly prayer in John 17, prayed for his followers, for you and for me, if you know and follow Jesus. He prayed that we would all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. There's the multiplication. That as unity happens, the world takes notice. And so as we continue through this book and we see the expansion of the church, we have to keep this scene in mind. It was, it was these believers' Holy Spirit-empowered unity that enables the spread of the gospel that we're going to see. So let's keep going here. Verse 32 again into 33. Now... The full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. So I want to focus now on that last phrase there in verse 33. The, the phrase great grace is literally mega grace. That's the, that's the language, the way it works there. So grace, or I think it's charis or cheris, is the gifts and favor that God pours onto the undeserving. It's different than mercy. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. And so Christ came to a, to a people who are empty. We had nothing to bring to him. Right, as the uh, one famous Reformed preacher says, we had nothing to bring to Christ except the sin that made his sacrifice necessary. We brought nothing to it, but he came to us and poured his grace out on us. We're saved by grace, we're healed by grace, we're nurtured by grace. It's all grace. And so there's no other response to grace except thank you. Which is why some of us are so afraid to say thank you to God, because when he pours his grace on you, the requirement is everything. Because the requirement is grace. And so the believer's hearts, if you know the Old Testament story of Mephibosheth, 
Uh, one of my favorite stories is a great song by an artist named John uh, Mark McMillan. Uh, love it. And so this story is the story of King David, who was best friends with Jonathan. Jonathan had an heir, a son, Mephibosheth. He was injured. He was crippled. And David chose to graciously care for Mephibosheth after Jonathan's death. And he promised that his land would be restored to him and he would always have a place at the king's table. It's a beautiful picture of the kingdom of heaven, actually. And so, in response, what does Mephibosheth do? Well, the scriptures in 2 Samuel 9 say that he paid homage to David and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? And this is the response of every Christian when we think about what Jesus has done for us. We sing the song, we're a wretch saved by grace. I like that, the dead dog such as I. The, The hearts of those Christians in the early church were filled with God's grace by the proclamation of the gospel, of hearing about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection from these apostles who were testifying powerfully to this resurrection. And so they were filled with God's grace, and it overflows into this community of believers. As soon as we start to care more about the conformity to our standards than to people moving towards Jesus and his grace, I just want to invite you, it's time to reconnect ourselves to the grace we've experienced in Jesus. Because when we're walking in grace ourselves, there's overflowing grace like that oil that David talked about. But when you start to say you got to conform to my standards, you've lost the plot. It's about the grace of Jesus overflowing. So the church is experiencing unity. They're walking in mega grace. But we also see that the church has great power. Again, literally mega power. The root for the Greek word translated power is the same root as our English word dynamite. So the gospel is blowing things apart in the world that these Christians are in. And so they're, they're, taught, they're speaking with explosive power. Verse 33, they were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And remember, uh, we, we said this last week, but the Sadducees are the main antagonists we see here in the book of Acts. And we know that the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. So for these Christians who had come from the Jewish faith to be speaking then to their Jewish brothers and sisters about the resurrection from the dead of Jesus is explosive. And so the church received... These apostles and these church folks received divine power to talk about the reality of the bodily resurrection of Jesus. So again, as we saw last week, this is what gives Peter and John the ability to not be, they're not arrogant, they just simply state the reality that we can't help but speak of what we've seen and heard. So Paul, another apostle, later wrote in Romans 6, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. It's a good reminder for us. When you were baptized, if you know and follow Jesus, all your rights died with your old sinful self. And you became a slave to righteousness. And now the power of the Spirit is at work in you. These Christians had themselves resurrection life. And as a result of that... People who heard them, some of the people who heard them 
believed. Now, you might be thinking, well, not all of them believed, but it's a miracle that any of them believed. And so their great power coming to them through the indwelling of the Spirit, that was resurrection power, the same power that raised Christ from the dead is now at work in you. Now, just as a way of reminder, this isn't some different power than you and I as followers of Jesus have. It's the same resurrection of the same Jesus and the same indwelling of the same Holy Spirit that pours into us this same mega grace and mega power. You have this same stuff in you because you have the same Holy Spirit indwelling you. If you know and you follow Jesus. So they had unity, they walked in mega grace and in mega power, but this last point is really important as well. There's this piece here in verse 34 of caring for one another. You might say the biblical idea of hospitality. Verse 34, there was not a needy person among them. That's radical to say, right? In a group of a few thousand people, no one was needy. Why? For as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Wow. Now, if you're wondering where we get the idea that the elders of a church should play a role in thinking about how the church deals with its finances, this is part of it. This is what we're all practicing Together Now, don't hear me say that I think I'm an apostle, not saying that at all, okay? Somebody calls himself that, run. That's not what I'm saying. But, but let's just get this out of the way, too. This text is written long before the idea of communism as we think of it existed, okay? So no, this text is not a treatise for communism. Simply put, communism says what's, what's yours is everyone's. But Christianity here, as we see it, comes along and says, what's mine is yours. So, so let's not let ourselves use the framework of our day and age to force an interpretation on this text that isn't there. We would call that eisegeting the text, and we don't want to do that. This category isn't at all in the mind of Luke as he's writing this. So instead of that, let's focus on the biblical ideas of generosity and of hospitality we see on display in this verse about no one having a need. So what does this look like? Well, it, it does include material care. We can't just skip over that either. The ESV translation that we're using actually does a good job of kind of catch, capturing the essence of it in verse 34. There was not a needy person among them for as many as were owners. So they owned stuff, right? They, they, owned, they had property. As many as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. So do we as Christians think we have some right to, to have personal property? Yeah, absolutely. There it is. They, they, they owned land and houses. But uh-oh, they sold them to care for the needs among the community of faith. So again, this isn't forced. And what we see, and we see that people, again, own land and houses. So again, the point for Luke is that the Holy Spirit, it's the Holy Spirit that's empowering, that's, import, that's pouring grace on them and is leading them to be vehicles of his grace by creating this incredible sacrificial generosity towards one another. I mean, it's amazing. I want to be part of this community. I want to be part of this kind of community where, man, nobody has a need, right? Until it's my turn to sell something. And then I got all kinds of arguments. Now, we see an example of this in 2 Corinthians 8 when the Macedonian church 
is literally begging Paul for the chance to give, for the privilege to give. Listen to this. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God. There it is, that mega grace of God that has been given among the churches in Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So the church in Macedonia is experiencing extreme poverty and they're like, please let us be part of giving to this need. It's incredible. So yes, material care. That is part of what we do as a church family. We care for one another. The practical way that works in our church is what we call the benevolent fund. We can give to that you can mark that on your envelope. You can mark it on your online giving. And we have that and we are able to meet needs. Just recently, uh, there was a shooting at the apartments nearby and one of the victims connected. I think I've told this story before, but one of the victims was connected to us by the school connection we have. And we were able to use that funding to buy some clothes for the kids whose family had been victimized by that violence. So that's how it plays itself out. So you're a part of it. And, and, and if you didn't know that, now you know. So from the very earliest part of our history as the global church, we care holistically for people. We care for all of it. The early church here doesn't seem to be falling for either of the traps that we can see in our modern times. They're not saying, well, the material doesn't matter, so just only the spiritual matters, so just preach the gospel and save souls, and who cares about earthly things? They're not saying that, but they're also not saying, well, let's feed people and sacrificially give, but let's not offend them by telling them the truth about sin and the lordship of Jesus. They're not doing either one of those. The early church is doing both. And we're going to see that even as we get to Acts 6, they systematize it. They care for the widows. And so based on Acts here, it seems that when Christians sincerely care for one another's material needs, there is a desire that pops up in us by the power of the Holy Spirit to minister to spiritual needs as well. Bearing one another's burdens, we sympathize with one another, we pray for one another, and, and, and in touch with others' hurts, like we're, we're in touch with what one another is going through, we will sacrifice time and comfort and possibly money for those who are in need. That's what we see in the book of Acts. How far does it go? Like, well, well, how far does this thing go? Well, unfortunately for my flesh and my greed, we got an example here in verse 36. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him. He sold a piece of property that he rightfully owned, and he brought the money and he laid it at the apostles' feet. So it's going to become evident as we continue in Acts why Barnabas had this nickname. But here in Acts 4, Barnabas' encouragement was much more than him just saying, hey, brother, be warm and fed, and then just moving on. No, Barnabas took that mega grace and mega power and turned it into something practical. And so this is 
the kind of a life that, that draws people to Jesus. It builds unity in the community of faith in the church, so much so that that unity, as we're going to see next, well, next time we're back in Acts, needs to be protected at a high cost. Now, I wonder, I was thinking this week, I wonder if Barnabas somehow was thinking of Jesus' words in John 13. Maybe John taught it to him, right? A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, so you are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Grace, power, summed up by Jesus in love for one another. Uh, Listen to this description of the early church in Rome. This was uh, St. Ignatius of Antioch writing a letter to the church at Rome. This is from the preface in that letter. He says this about the early church in Rome. It was a church worthy of God, worthy of honor, worthy of congratulations, worthy of praise, worthy of successes, worthy in purity, preeminent in love, and walking in the law of Christ and bearing the Father's name. Now we can hear that as corporate, and we can hear that as individual, that the Christians are worthy of all those things. And so the question I just want to revisit and leave us with today is just simply this. What, what about us? How about us as a church family and as individuals? Uh, as we look at this picture of the early church in Acts and we see the unifying empowerment of the Holy Spirit leading to this mega grace, this mega power, and I would add mega generosity, but what about us? Now, now my hope is not that you hear that question and leave discouraged. It's never what we want. My hope is not that you hear that question and go, oh man, it's an indictment against me. It's not that. My hope is that a question like this leaves us craving to see this in our church and drives us first and foremost to the action of prayer. That we pray, Lord, make me this kind of person. And would you bind us together in unity? I want to see this in my church. And so Jesus when he leaves us these stories by his inspiration through the Spirit in the Bible, it's not indicting us, he's inviting us into something more. And so the question then is, what about us individually and what about us as a church family? Do we see this happening? And if not, what's our next step when it comes to praying and asking the Holy Spirit to to make us into this kind of people? So let's pray even now. Jesus, we thank you for these stories. We thank you that they lean against us. They make us a little uncomfortable. They make us say, well, I'm not sure. And and that causes us, Jesus, to to just push more into you. And so, Holy Spirit, would would you leave that invitation just hanging in the air of our mind as we leave today? Would you just... Would you just remind us of that invitation to to, to this resurrection power life filled with grace as we are at work this week, as we're with our kids this week, as we're with our families this week and with our neighbors, as we see someone in need, would you just, just prod us a little bit to remember that we're leaving grace on the table for ourselves and for the person who has need when we refuse to answer that call. So would you make us a people who are radically generous? and who operate in this kind of power and grace as we go out from here. And we pray this all in your name. Amen.